Support for Innovation Hub comes from Bunker Hill Community College Compelling Conversation Series with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Religious Intolerance, October 26th. You can register at bhcc.edu slash cc. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. By the late 1960s, there were a lot of movements for equality and respect that were in full swing. Civil rights, women's rights, student rights. But there were still places in the halls of power where not a whole lot had changed, and a new world did not seem inevitable. One Yale graduate who had heard that coeducation might be coming to Yale wrote to his alumni magazine, quote, Gentlemen, let's face it. Charming as women are, they get to be a drag if you're forced to associate with them each and every day. Think of the poor student who has a steady date. He wants to concentrate on the basic principles of thermodynamics, but she keeps trying to gossip about the idiotic trivia all women try to impose on men. That letter writer was far from alone in his feelings. But change was coming. And for some of these elite schools, it would be one of the biggest changes in hundreds of years. Nancy Weiss-Malkiel writes about those years of change in Keep the Damn Women Out, the struggle for co-education. She's a professor emeritus of history at Princeton. Nancy, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you, Kara. You read one of my favorite quotes. (laughs) That is quite a quote, isn't it? Um, So before some of those most elite schools started going co-ed in the late 60s and the early 70s, What was college education uh, like for women, and what were their options? Because clearly, you know, the Yales, the Princetons, those were off the table. For almost a century, the preferred option for the most talented women high school students was to go to a women's college, ideally a Seven Sisters school if they were uh, able to win admission. And by that, I mean, of course, Smith, Wellesley, Mount Holyoke, Radcliffe, Barnard, uh, Bryn Mawr. There were other options. There were other women's colleges, many other women's colleges, in fact. And there were co-ed schools. There had been co-ed schools in the United States since the 19th century. Right. Schools like Oberlin, mm-hmm. uh, private institutions, many of the major universities, the land-grant universities especially, and private institutions like Stanford and Chicago, founded Mm -hmm. in the last decade of the 19th century. So there were chances for women to go to school with men, but the most talented women students, if you will, the women students whose credentials paralleled those of the men who were going to Princeton and Yale, were going to women's colleges. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then, you know, here you get to the late 1960s, still, still these places, uh, these elite institutions are all men. A lot of men who have been there feel very strongly, let's keep it that way. Okay, what starts to turn the tide? Because as you point out, within a few years, like, it's shocking how many places go co-ed. It's not like it happens slowly. It happens like in a big bang. It's a flood of decisions in a very short space of time. We have to set the context. The 1960s provide uh, an important context with, as you said, the women's movement, the student movement, the anti-war movement, the civil rights uh, movement. There's enormous upheaval in the 1960s, and universities at the end of the decade look very different from what they had looked like at the beginning of the decade. Men and women protest 
together. They engage in registering black voters together. The notion that they wouldn't go to school together seems uh, increasingly anachronistic. But the real trigger for the change is that admission patterns begin to change. Yale and Princeton in particular experience this, and they're the prime movers here. Mm. What they begin to see is that the high school students they lovingly refer to as the best boys are beginning to show in their application patterns and in their decisions once offered admission that they don't want to go to school schools that are all male anymore. They want to go to school with girls. And that is what makes these schools pay attention and decide to act. So what they imagine is that if they admit women, it will be a way of retaining their hold on these best boys. Mm. It will be a way of recovering. It will be a way of competing more effectively with Harvard This is the point where Harvard begins to pull away from Princeton and Yale. They had gone head-to-head in admissions for a long time before this. As recently as the early 1960s, they had been competing evenly. Well, Harvard has Radcliffe up the street. And so by the late 1960s, Harvard is pulling away from Princeton and Yale. Princeton and Yale don't like this. So admitting women becomes the strategic means of regaining their hold on the best men. So women are admitted not because there's a moral commitment to educating women, not because of some high-minded conviction about the education of women, but because having women will presumably improve the education of men. Yeah, that's interesting. Not for equality, but to beat Harvard. Yeah, like, you know, let's keep our priorities straight kind of thing. Absolutely. Right. So normally we think of important decisions, momentous decisions being made by really important kind of high-ranking people. But the way you describe it, a lot of these important decisions that were made around elite schools going co-ed and opening their doors and uh, making their education available to both men and women, that decision in a lot of ways is prompted by 17-year-old boys, right? High school seniors, right? (laughs) Who are saying, you know, you know, Yale and Princeton, I'm not that interested, right? I'm not that interested in going to this school because you don't have women. And because of what they're doing, because of what they are saying and doing, Yale and Princeton are forced to kind of start this domino and and react and like go co-ed. What changed about 17-year-old boys? Because they once, uh, presumably, were okay with going to all-male schools because they had for a long, long time. I think what changed uh, was that they were growing up in the 1960s, and they saw and to some extent participated in the student movement, the civil rights movement. The world around them was such that the kind of all-male as Robert Goheen of Princeton used to call it, the monastic institutions were just no longer very appealing to young students who had grown up amid the tumult of the 1960s. So we talked a little bit about this, but talk about the forces or the people who arrayed themselves against coeducation, who when this began to be discussed said, this is a mistake. Don't do this. Like, how strong were those forces? Who were they? Explain that. Uh, the alumni of these institutions were generally not happy 
about uh, the idea of coeducation. The title of my book comes from a letter from a Dartmouth alumnus to the chair of the Dartmouth trustees in 1970. This is a Dartmouth alumnus class of 1929, and he, with Dartmouth considering coeducation, he wrote, for God's sake, for Dartmouth's sake, and for everyone's sake, keep the damned women out. Uh, he was very representative mm. of uh, the alumni of these institutions. The Princeton alumni uh, had colorful language that very well matched uh, that Yale <laughs> alumnus you quoted, describing coeducation as a nutty idea. Uh, it would be easier, one of them wrote, to establish an old-fashioned whorehouse and a lot less expensive. People believed that if Princeton were to coeducate, Princeton as they knew it would be dead. These alumni had wonderful experiences at these all-male institutions. They had great pride in uh, the education that they had obtained, in the all-male camaraderie they had experienced, which had set them on an excellent course for their lives. These were friends they made who would be important social and professional connections going forward. The notion that anyone would tamper with that sounded to them like heresy. So I'm sure you've talked to a lot of the first women who who got into and went to some of these schools. Tell me like a couple of stories that you remember that struck you about like, you know, things they said or experiences that they had in those first years. It was very challenging. These were brave young women who imagined that they would be pioneers that it would be an adventure, that there was something special to be gained by uh, being among the first women at schools undergoing major uh, transformation. And so it was exciting. But at the same time, it was really tough. They were under a microscope. The press was all over them, Mm. swarming the campus. And their fellow students and their teachers simply didn't know how to deal with them. Some examples. The student who says that she walked into a study room in Firestone Library at Princeton, 40 men in the room studying. She walked in and a giggle started around the room. And she said she left and never went back because it was just so awkward. Hmm. Men swarming the dormitories where the women lived, uh, trying to gain dates, but at the same time, reluctant to ask for dates because there were so many more men than women that the men figured the women already had dates lined Hmm. up, and why ask and be shot down? So the Princeton women I knew in the early years of coeducation would lament that they were staying home on Saturday night because the guys (laughs) simply hadn't asked them out. The experience in the classroom was extremely awkward. Usually there were one, maybe two women in, in a class, and the Students didn't know what to make of her, and the instructors certainly uh, didn't. People would always ask the women's students for the women's point of view, Mm. and that made sense, perhaps, if it was a course in literature or psychology where a gendered point of view might be relevant, but math or physics (laughs) 
Um, What's the woman's um, point of view on calculus? Like there's well, a divide exactly. maybe. Yeah. Um, instructors were really tough on these first uh, women. An art history professor at Dartmouth would post uh, slides of nudes on the screen and run his hand up and down the thighs of the nudes. Um, there were faculty members at Yale who repeatedly reminded the women students that their arrival was the cause of the fact that the men could no longer uh, walk naked and swim naked in Payne Whitney Gymnasium. Okay. <laughs> a faculty member at Yale, the chair of the history department, was asked by a new woman student if he would consider offering a course in women's history. And he responded, that would be like teaching the history of dogs. One Princeton woman in the first co-ed class said uh, that she had never felt so alone as a woman and that her experience as an American field service student in India in high school had uh, been extremely valuable to her because she felt at Princeton as though she was in a foreign country. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I bet a lot of those professors, too, felt like they weren't listened to in the decision you know, to go co-ed. Oh, and they and, were. Right. And and that this had, like, been forced on them. And, you know, the decision could be forced on them, but nobody could force, you know, the way they were going to act. Like, nobody could tell them what to do. Exactly. So I should add to this. You joined the Princeton faculty in 1969, right as this avalanche of schools is starting to go co-ed. When did Princeton go co-ed? In 1969. So the first women students arrived as I um, joined the faculty. What did you see? Like when you went home at the end of the day, what did you think? Well, this was all new to me. I had been a graduate student at Harvard, and then I came to Princeton as a faculty member. My, my advisor at Harvard, Frank Friedel, for whom I was uh, teaching sections in a new black history course, in the fall of 1968, recommended me for the job at Princeton and laughed when he told me that. And I laughed because there were no women at Princeton. And he said, but it would be good for them to have to think about it. So when I arrived for my interview at Princeton in the fall of 1968, the history department chair said, it isn't that we have a policy against hiring women. It's that no one's ever suggested it before. <laughs> So I was coming into a world in which the men didn't know what to make of me. I didn't know what to make of the men. And as I say, the whole thing was new to me. I walked into my first classes in the history department comprised uh, entirely of men. And all the young men in the class stood up when I walked in and pulled my out my chair uh, this was a discussion, mm. uh, a precept. And that went on for a little while. One of my advisees brought an off apple to me in my office uh, hours. <laughs> on my course evaluations, I got comments like, um, there is less idle joking in your classes, or you teach from a feminine point of view. So there was a <laughs> lot of getting used to on all sides. These were, these were male students, after all, who had applied to Princeton as an all-male institution. And except for the 
uh, freshmen had come to Princeton when it was all male. So some some of the students I knew best said I was their first woman teacher since sixth grade. So there was a lot of learning going on on uh, all uh, sides, and I was participating in and watching an institution in the midst of a really fundamental uh, change. Probably I didn't appreciate as fully as I might uh, the dimensions of that change uh, as I was living it. So at that time, and and still today, um, most Americans are not college graduates, and certainly even most Americans who've gone to college didn't go to this tiny sliver um, of elite schools. So I wonder how you think this move towards coeducation has impacted the country more broadly, or if it or if it has. Well, what it has done is to open uh, to talented women every educational opportunity historically available to talented men. And that means uh, that women have unfettered access to the best faculty, the best laboratory and library resources, the best opportunities for uh, learning at the highest level. Now, that doesn't affect the broad population, except that people who are educated in these institutions hold a disproportionate share of the leadership positions in our society generally, in the professions, at least uh, up until this point, in uh, public life. And it matters that those opportunities are available equally to women as well as to men. Nancy Weiss-Malkiel is a professor emeritus of history at Princeton. She's also the author of Keep the Damn Women Out, The Struggle for Coeducation. Nancy, thank you so much for this great conversation. Kara, thank you. It's been a pleasure. We've got more on our website about why some schools did admit women early on and then either changed their minds or pulled back a little, like, for example, Stanford. Early in the 1890s, it became very clear that there were many women coming to Stanford and they were doing very well, on average better than the men. Mrs. Stanford, Malkiel says, was worried that Stanford would be overrun by women. We've got more on schools that had similar concerns. That's at innovationhub.org.